Um, so I just want to start off by saying I appreciate a bunch of you asked me several weeks um, or throughout this past month, you know, what I was stepping into, um, what I was preaching. And I would look at you and I would say Jesus. And at that point, most of you just started laughing. So the encouragement was really good as I'm getting ready to uh, step into this uh, doctrinal um, understanding of who Christ is. But before we do that, I want to do something. I've got a couple pictures up here and we're going to look through who Christ isn't. So let me see if I can get this clicker going. So this is not Christ, of course. This is an actor from the show Chosen. Again, not, not Jesus Christ. This isn't Jesus Christ. This is another actor from the movie Passion. This is not Jesus Christ. <laughs> Guys, this is Obi-Wan Kenobi. So please, Doug, come Easter, don't put him on your Facebook page. This is Obi-Wan, not even close. And then last, this is not Jesus Christ either. I don't know if you can tell who that is, remove some of the hair and all that, but uh, that's not Jesus. Um, so again, I have stepped into the um, joy of bringing just a little bit of information of who um, Christ is. Um, so let's um, talk about that for a little bit. So this is a doctrinal question. Um, that many religions and denominations and groups of people have debated about for years and centuries. However, there are two ways that we could define this question of who Christ is. Um, I could start off by stating that Jesus Christ was a good man, that he existed, you know, 2,000 years ago. Um, and if I left it there and we stopped, most of those denominations, religions, and groups of people would be perfectly fine with that statement. No issues whatsoever. But if I were to step up in that same conversation and say, let's define Christ as being fully God, born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, lived here on the earth as fully man, was tempted and suffered as we do, lived a perfect life, and was crucified on the cross as fully God and fully man. For the sins of all mankind, we'd have a lot of debating that would start at that point. So today we're gonna to look into these truths. Um, before we start diving into that, I've got two things that are kind of necessary, they're really necessary, to come to the truths of who Christ is. Um, first and most importantly, we must believe in the accuracy, authority, and inerrancy of the Scripture. If we don't, then everything we try to put together from here is on shifting sand. Um, I love, love that so far, over the past three weeks that we've been going through these doctrinal um, questions, all three of the men that have stepped up here, Jeremiah and Adam and uh, Tom, have made a huge emphasis that the understanding of all things, and especially doctrinal things, has to come from the Word of God. It is the foundation upon which we stand. And that is the way it is here at Redstone. I can state that with all authority, that we stand on the Word of God in it alone. So we have to have that. Um, John Wolver, in his book, Jesus Christ Our Lord, states this about the importance of Scripture in the study of who Christ is. He says, It is significant that aside from a few cults whose teachings are quite contradictory, students of Christology who have accepted the Bible as the inerrant and authoritative Word of God have invariably also accepted the deity of Jesus Christ, and the historical accuracy of his virgin birth, sinless life, substitutionary death, and bodily resurrection. So to rightly understand who Christ is, we must trust and go to his word to figure out who he is. 
And then the second thing that is necessary um, to come to an understanding of who Christ is is our hermeneutics or how we interpret Scripture. It should be one from a more literal stance um, rather than that's one that's uh, allegorical or symbolical. Um, I'm not here to dive, of course, into hermeneutics and what it is exactly, but we must understand that when we read Scripture, we should take the plain meaning of the passage seen through the lens of its context and the intentionality of the author itself. Of course, I'm not saying that when Jesus calls himself a door, he's literally a wooden door, or when he calls himself or calls us believers as branches, we are literally um, tree branches. No, I'm saying we must understand that when scripture tells us that Jesus died on a cross, he literally died on a cross. When he says he rose from the dead, he literally rose from the dead. So, again, we must believe in the accuracy, authority, and inerrancy of Scripture, and it must be interpreted in a literal stance. With that, let's begin to work through this question of who Christ is. I have four points that we're going to go through. Um, I'm going to make um, about who Christ is. Each one is fairly scripture-heavy, um, and for that, I'm not apologetic, and I think at this point, if I was, I'd be kind of a hypocrite. But, um, so let's step into the first one. I've got in the worship guide, there's four points listed out there. Um, this is going to be our first one. Jesus Christ is one of three. He is one of the Trinity. Wayne Grudem defines the Trinity like this in his book, uh, Systematic Theology. It says, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, that's Jesus, of course, and the Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. I'm not here again to divide dive into the doctrine of the Trinity, but I do think it's important that for us to see Jesus' place in it all, and that he is part of it. We see in Scripture that God exists in more than one person. It says in Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. This plural us revealed throughout Scripture to be these three persons. Matthew 28.19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, Jesus, and of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And then 1 Peter 1, 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And then we see that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, in Matthew 3, 16 through 17, it says, And when Jesus was baptized... Immediately he went up from the Father, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So right off the bat, we see that the person of Jesus is pretty important. He's one of the three. When we talk of him, we talk about the one true and unified God of the Bible. And that's nothing to take lightly. But... We also understand that Jesus is different than the other two, the Father and the Holy Spirit, and that he has his own role to play. So let's talk a bit more 
about who he truly is. The second point I have, um, again, in your worship guide is Jesus is fully man. Um, here's some of the ways throughout scripture that we uh, see this and identify this. Um, Jesus was born of a human mother. Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, uh, before they came together, she was found to be with, for, with child from the Holy Spirit. Next, we see that he had a human body that grew. Luke 2, 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. He had a human body that tired. John 4, 6. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. He had a human body that hungered. Matthew 4, 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. He had a human body that thirst. John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. He had a human body that matured. And Luke, this is Luke 2, 5, 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He had a human body that felt emotion. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. John twelve twenty seven. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus had a human body that was raised from the dead in human form. Luke 24, 39. So, by, so my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And the only way he differed from us um, in this human form is he was born perfect. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.22 He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And then 1 John 3.5 You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And last, he had to be fully man so that he could identify with us, suffer in our place, and sympathize with us in our weakness. Roman five, Romans 5.19, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And then Hebrews 2.17-18, through 18, says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself had suffered when tempted, 
he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, through my study um, of who Christ was, I kept coming across the book, Mere Christianity. And I've got two quotes in here um, that I'd like to share with you. Um, But this one pertains um, to him being fully man. And this is from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. It says, "But But supposing God became a man, Suppose our human nature, which can suffer and die, was agglomerated with God's nature in one person. Then that person could help us. He could surrender his will and suffer and die because he was man. And he could do it perfectly because he was God. You and I can go through this process only if God does it in us. But God can do it only if he becomes a man. Our attempts at this dying will succeed only if we men share in God's dying. Just as our thinking can succeed only because it's a drop out of the ocean of his intelligence. But we cannot share God's dying unless God dies. And he cannot die except by being a man. That is the sense in which he pays our debt and suffers for us what he himself need not suffer. My third point is Jesus Christ is fully God. Jesus Christ is fully God. Here's some of the ways we see this throughout Scripture. He was conceived in the womb by the Holy Spirit. This is the same passage we used for the the previous one. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had betrothed Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. We see that deity dwells within him. Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And I'm getting a little little beyond myself, but we see it in the Greek as well. The Greek word theos, or God, that is used primarily throughout the New Testament's reference God the Father, is used also to reference Christ. We see it in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, theos. And the word was God. Of course, the word referencing Jesus. John 20, 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, Theos. Romans 9, 5. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God, Theos, over all. Blessed forever. Blessed forever. Amen. And then Titus 2, 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God, Theos, and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then we also see it in the Greek, by the, or through the Greek word, um, kurios. I think I said, he's shaking, Luke's shaking his head, kurios, um, or Lord. Now this can mean master or sir. However, the same word is used in the Greek Old Testament to mean Yahweh. And this is referenced over, I think, 7,000 times. It can mean Yahweh or Jehovah. And in the right context, the word guides us to the understanding that the Lord is the same as creator. And we see it in Luke 2, 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then 2 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we 
sorry, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And then Revelation 19, 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then we see Jesus claimed the same title that God did. Um, this is the title that God claimed in Exodus 3:14 when he declared to the Israelites to Moses, I am who I am. This is in John 8, 57 through 58. So to the Jews said, so the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And of course, many people declared him to be God throughout Scripture. Jesus did it himself in John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. Peter did it in Matthew 16, 16. Um, it says, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thomas did it in John. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Paul did it, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And then John the Baptist did it as well in John 1, 34. And I have seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God. And of course, he had to be fully God to take on and pay the full penalty of sin for all people of all time. Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ. Uh, in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Again, I came across... Um, that second quote from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Um, I really like this one. I think it's interesting as we um, read through it of how um, some of us struggle with the idea of God being that um, fully God and how it's almost like a cheat code to some extent. But let's, let's read this. Uh, um, if you can read it there, I'll, I'm going to read it out loud, but if you can follow along. This is a quote again from C.S. Lewis. It says, I've heard from some people complain that if Jesus was God as well as man, then his sufferings and death lose all value in their eyes because he must have been easy. It must have been easy for him. Others may very rightly rebuke the ingratitude and graciousness of this, this objection. What staggers me is the misunderstanding it betrays. In one sense, of course, those who make it are right. They have even underestimated their, understated their, uh, their own case. The perfect submission, the perfect suffering, the perfect death were not only easier to Jesus because he was God, but were possible only because he was God. But surely that is a very odd reason for not accepting them. The teacher is able to form the letters for the, per for the perfect penitent child because the teacher is grown up and knows how to write. That, of course, makes it easier for the teacher. And only because it is easier for him can he help the child. If it rejected him because it's easy for grown-ups and waited to learn writing from another child who could not write itself and so had no unfair advantage, it would not get on very quickly. If I am drowning in a rapid river, a man who had one foot on the bank may give me a hand which saves my life, 
Ought I to shout back between my gasps? No, it's not fair. You have an advantage. You're keeping one foot on the bank. That advantage, call it unfair if you like, is the only reason why he can be of any use to me. To what will you look for help if you will not look to that which is stronger than yourself? So just because Jesus is fully God, it doesn't diminish what he has done for us. No, it highlights what he has done and his desires to rescue us. My last point is, and then probably is one of the hardest points to kind of wrap your head around, is Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person. We see this throughout scripture um, where we see both natures united in one person. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In Romans 8, 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. We see both natures functioning separately, but in one person of Christ. Um, what does this mean? It means that if there is something that only one of Christ's natures did, he can say that I did it. The person of Christ can say he did it. We see this in Christ's divine nature existing before Abraham, yet is in Jesus when he says in John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. We see this in the fact that God cannot die. Yet we know Jesus died on the cross. See, it was the human nature part of Jesus that died, not the divine nature. Wayne Grudem in his book, Systematic Theology, states um, in this way. It says, by virtue of union with Jesus's human nature, his divine nature somehow tasted something of what it was like to go through death. The person of Christ experienced death. We also see both natures functioning separately, yet in one person, when Jesus, who is God, didn't know the day or hour of his return after his resurrection. Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Of course, that's Jesus um, talking there. Now, some of you are probably like me. Um, still doesn't quite make sense. Um, how can you be fully something and fully something else? Well, just so you know, this is something that I'm still wrestling with. It's kind of like the Trinity. It's a hard concept to wrap your head around. And there's still a lot more studying that can be done. Um, but I started thinking, you know, maybe there's an example I could kind of give you um, and talk about. And so after processing and thinking, the best one that I could kind of think of and actually, I thought of this um, last week, I think, while uh, Tom was sharing. But I kind of got the idea of just um, the general of an army stepping down into the rank and file of those he commands. You know, he stepped down. He is the general, the commanding officer of everybody underneath of him. But at times, when it was needed, he stepped down into the, the dirt, the ditches, to help his men achieve the result that was needed. But he still had the authority of commanding those men. And at any point, he could step back up into that role that he needed to be in. But he chose to step down and to help lead those men. 
And once the task was finished, once the job was done, he then steps back up into his command position. So I don't know if that's helpful or not, but that's kind of how I wrapped my head around this doctrine of him being fully one thing and fully another, fully God and fully man in this same person. So in finishing up, um, who is Christ? Well, he's the perfect union of humanity and deity in one person. He can fully sympathize with us in our weakened state of humanity because he was fully human and tasted it too. But because he is fully God, he did what we could not. He lived perfectly. He was the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. He defeated death. He allowed a path for us to one day rest in the arms of our God and King. And then to finish this up, I figured what better way than just to read Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. It speaks so perfectly of who Christ is. Plus, it's the Word of God. You can't argue with that. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He spoke to us by His Son, who He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are, Lord. Lord, we thank you that even though um, we didn't deserve it. You decided to step down in your full glory into a messy, messy place, Lord. And to live with us and alongside of us, Lord. To experience the pains, the depression, the hurt, the anger, the thirst, the growing pains. Lord, you experienced all those things just as we have. And we thank you for stepping into that role. We thank you, Lord, that you did it um, with the help of your Father. The guidance and direction of him, Lord, with the perfect plan that he had set out to, again, redeem us. Um, Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice that you made by laying yourself down on a cross. Sacrificing yourself so that we could one day again be in the arms of you. So Lord, we cherish that and we thank you for it. Lord, help us to never forget and to always run to your word, Lord, in those hard times of um, lacking understanding, to seek your wisdom through your word. But again, thank you for your glory. Lord, we praise your name as king of all. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.